Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Don't be afraid to, to stand up, speak out, because we need all voices. And if you've been injured, please tell your story. Please tell your story. That was Kim Witzak, someone who calls herself an accidental advocate. She never set out to become a drug safety advocate and a thorn in the side of Big Pharma and the FDA. But all of that changed almost 20 years ago with a single phone call. And wait till you hear what she has to say about all of this in our incredible conversation right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. The United States makes up less than 5% of the world's population. But Americans take at least 75% of all pharmaceutical drugs, spending over $600 billion per year on those medications. An estimated 128,000 Americans die each year as a result of taking medications as prescribed, and this is at least the fourth leading cause of death among Americans. All of this and so much more is why I invited Kim Witzak onto the show. Kim, welcome to Post Woke. Oh, great. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. And speaking of what you have to say, one of my um, one of the more profound lines is that you say, sometimes life's greatest purpose chooses you. So, Kim, how did we get here to this interview? And how does the stuff I mentioned in the intro and more connect to your greatest life, your life's greatest purpose? Sure. Well, I always like to say I call myself the accidental advocate because I never chose to do this work. And that's really where I get to, you know, sometimes life happens and it chooses your greatest purpose. So uh, it's my journey started a long time over 19 years ago. I was happily married to my husband of almost 10 years, Woody. And we, you know, we're living life. We were talking about having starting a family. Would had an um, I have an entire spent my entire career in advertising and marketing, so I was traveling the world on productions. And Woody had just started his dream job with a startup company, and so that was the life prior to what I'm going to tell you. So with his new job came a little bit of stress and sleeplessness, and um, and he was a guy that always needed eight hours, so he went to his GP, his family doctor and um, was telling him he's having trouble sleeping within, you know, what the typical conversation with your um, family doctors, maybe 10, 10 minutes. He mm-hmm. left with a um, sample pack, a three-week sample pack of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant, and it was pr- given to him for insomnia and was told that it would help take the edge off uh, so he could sleep. And meanwhile, so he comes home with a three-week three sample pack. I'm actually in New Zealand on a BMW uh, advertising shoot. So I wasn't there the first three weeks when he was put on this drug. Okay. So I, you know, I did talk to him throughout that time, but, you know, I didn't see him. So when I get back home, I'll never forget 
what I saw. Um, he, you know, was, I was excited to make dinner for him. It was, you know, just a, a Wednesday night. And in walks Woody, drops his, um, he had a blue dress shirt on, undershirt underneath, and he's sopping wet, sweat, drops his bag at the floor and falls into a fetal position in front of our dishwasher. Wow. Puts, yeah, puts his ha hands around his head like a vice. And he's like, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening to me. My head's outside my body looking in. Help me, help me. And he's bawling. And I was like, what? Like, I had never seen this ever. He ever. said his head is outside of his body. Yep, his head's okay. outside. And he pulled his head, you know, oh. um, outside. And he's like, as if it was out here, like, you know, looking in, in detached from his body. And so I remember we calmed him down. I said, hey, you know, call your doctor and, and tell him. He calls his doctor and the doctor said, you know, you got to give this drug four to six weeks to kick in. And yeah, the next week, every day, Woody would come home and he'd be like, hey, what do you think about hypnosis? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. What do you think about acupuncture? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. What do you think about, um, you know, chiropractor? Like he was looking for anything to beat this feeling in his head. So I, um, it's now August, um, you know, the August, the beginning of the week, I go out of town. We had just, um, to go out of town for another shoot because it's in my busy, um, season and I left, you know, we talked the next day on August 6th, 2003. I'll never forget. I woke up in the morning and we always talked a million times. You know, we always left messages. We, you know, sent notes in each other's bags, just how we communicated. Uh, so I called him in the morning because I to tell him a funny dream. There was no answer. Call him later, no answer. Call him later, no answer. And then, you know, I started sending him emails. And I just, you know, I have my records of the emails, and they got more and more frantic, like, oh, my God, I haven't heard from you all day. Call me. I'm nervous. So about, like, 7 o'clock um, Minneapolis time, and I was in Detroit, uh, I called my dad. I'm like, hey, do me a favor. I haven't heard from Woody all day. And he's been having trouble sleeping. So I'm afraid he might have maybe fall, maybe he's fallen and hit his head or something. So my dad goes over. And then I'll never forget, I get the call. Kim, it's bad. It's bad. I'm like, what do you mean it's bad? And he's like, Woody's dead. I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm still shooting in the studio. And yeah. I was like, what? I'm like, how do you know he's dead? And he's like, he's hanging. I'm like, what? Like, so none of that. I'm like, hanging? So anyways, obviously, in one phone call, my entire life, the life that I knew, I loved, I thought I was going to have the rest of my life changed with that call. And I remember having to, you know, like I was in shock. I didn't even know what to do. The guy you I was would, with. yeah. Yeah, and so one of the my coworkers, I'm like, uh, I need to go back to the hotel. Something just horrible happened, and we got in the car, and I just lost it. And so thank God I was with people um, that were amazing. But I'll never forget that night when we got back to um, the coroner called me and asked if Woody was on any medication. And the only medication, I said, yeah, it's upstairs. She goes, no, actually, there's a bottle sitting on the kitchen counter, Zoloft. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. And she said, we're going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. And, and I remember, like, in my mind that, you know, I'm, again, trying to figure out how to get home from Detroit. But that, um, that situation, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband was there at that time. And he went home and Googled Zoloft and suicide and was shocked at what we found. <laughs> Uh, which is that the FDA held hearings in 1991 on Prozac and the um, correlation between violence and suicide in, you know, with this drug. And at that, that was 1991. And all the advisory board members who were on the committee had um, voted, nope, we don't have any issues, even though there were big public hearings with all of these people that came forward. So obviously my life had fallen apart. My brother-in-law is doing all this research, you know, um, is ordering all these books coming in. And about a week after Wood's um, funeral, he came to me and goes, I think I figured out what happened to Woody. And it became 
in that moment became my mission of we're getting black box suicide warnings on it. So if it can happen to somebody like Woody who wasn't depressed, he wasn't, he didn't have mental health issues. He didn't have, um, you know, history of it or anything. Uh, you know, here's, he was still during this time running cause he was super like, he was a training for a marathon. And so he kept, he kept track of all his miles. Although when he started the drug, he was only able to, he's like, I don't know what's happening, but I can only run about three miles. So I had his whole record. He was still, you know, so anyways, that became the start of the journey where we would go out to um, Washington, D.C. And one other thing I forgot to tell you, on the day that Woody was found, the front page of our newspaper had an article that said the U.K. finds a link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. So in really, in essence, both of those were major clues because Woody did not leave a note. And I remember thinking on Woody's biggest trip of his life, meaning being done with this life, he didn't leave a note. But I think that was his note in a way. I mean, and that's where I say life's greatest purpose chooses us. Oh, so. boy. Wow. It, it, just the way you describe it, where this is a man who is striving to live and live well. Like, I, I found a hypnotherapist. I found an acupuncturist. I'm training for a marathon. Like, he was, there was no indication from everything you said. And then um, I couldn't imagine, you know, it's so touching that he, you guys always left each other notes, but he didn't leave you a note this time. And maybe he just felt like, what could I possibly say? But he sent you the, the information you needed in another way. And you've now close to two decades later, you're, you're still on this for him and for countless, countless others, because, um, and for the record, Pfizer makes Zoloft, right? Like, yes. So okay. Just, just to put that demonic name out there. But, um, so 12 years prior to Woody's death, they had a, they had a wake up call that there could be an issue. And at the very, very, very least, they should be putting a black box warning on that, if not pulling it from the shelves. So I have all that correct, right? Yes. So that was just at that point, it was only Prozac on the market. Okay. So now, you know, you fast forward and at that time they said, oh, we don't see anything. So there was no issue, you know, no reason to put a warning or any kind of, you know, even though all these people came forward and it's really interesting if you go look at the, um, the footage from the 1991 and then, and I'll, and then you look at what happened in the 2004 hearings in 2006. But, you know, um, at that time when they said there, you know, the advisory board was like, nope, no issue. The FDA told the makers of Prozac, Eli Lilly, to study suicidality. And they never did. The FDA never followed up. And meanwhile, here comes Zoloft. Here comes Paxil. It gets approved for kids. So really all those many, many years without a warning of something that they knew. So when this became my purpose and I'm like, I'm getting on a plane, we're going out to DC, we're getting warnings because it's too late for our family. And, you know, at that point we were pushing, um, the, there was a house energy and commerce committee that was starting to look into this idea of antidepressants and suicide in teens. So we were working with them we um, went to the FDA, met with them personally. We started um, meeting with, you know, starting with my own member Congress and then started branching out to the, um, the members of Congress that actually sat on the committees that could do something. So it eventually there were FDA hearings, black box suicide warning or hearings in 2004 for kids and then young adults in 2006. So we were able to, and we were very, very instrumental in getting these black box suicide warnings put on these drugs. To this day, it still doesn't include all ages. You know, it stopped at age 24. Uh, and I remember at the time um, thinking, how does a drug know that I'm 24 today, but 25 yeah. tomorrow? It makes no sense. Like, it makes no sense. Yeah, you. I was just about to ask you, is there, do they even attempt a rationale at why 24 is the number at which they stop putting the warning on there? No, it just became like, oh, your brains are still developing. But, you know, the funny thing is during, so I had, as I call the battle for Woody is what I called it at that time. And it was kind of a four-pronged strategy. You know, I, um, 
you know, it included lobbying, which meant, you know, meeting with the FDA, HHS, members of Congress. Then it, um, I worked a lot with the media and the mainstream media at that point was actually really good at, I mean, you know, at least they would tell this other side of the story because, you know, I think that was the power of Woody's story. He didn't have any of the things that people could go, oh, he was depressed, right? Mm. Oh, he would have done this anyway. Um, and then the other part is that I had a wrongful death failure to warn lawsuit against Pfizer. And in my case, uh, I was able to get, my lawyers were able to get a bunch of the company documents uh, um, declassified. So I was able to use them in my lobbying efforts. And, you know, once you've seen these documents, and one um, actually is a document where the um, South African federal, you know, regulator contacted mm -hmm. Pfizer's chief medical officer for Zoloft, telling them that they have doctors who are um, um, have patients on 50 milligrams where they stood outside their bodies looking in. And Pfizer writes back to them in this internal email, oh, um, it happens on all SSRIs, we don't know why. And that one to me, when I was sitting there and that's what Woody was telling me for a week, you know, the last week of his life, he was outside his body looking in and you guys knew about it and you didn't warn people? Wow. Yeah, so that one was really powerful. But, you know, I would take these documents and, you know, I had Woody's story and I, you know, I was able to work with some other families and there's, um, and especially families of children. And we were able to do a lot of lobbying with these documents because, you know, you can hear the stories, but more importantly, uh, and I don't discredit, you know, what happened to Woody or anybody else, but, you know, when you see in black and white what these companies knew, what the FDA knew, and, uh, and they knew about it back in the late 80s before they actually even held the hearings in 1991. It's, it's, and it's amazing because critics of Big Pharma will sometimes be um, judged harshly as if they just speak in hyperbole or broad strokes where they don't get into nuance and context. They just think all corporations are bad or all pharmaceuticals are bad. But when you, all you have to do is just come down a couple of levels and read what you just read. And you say to yourself, this, it's not, it's not some anti-capitalist perspective to say profits outweighed people here by a mile. Like what they consider to be acceptable collateral damage um, is your husband. It's someone's child. And this is utterly unacceptable. And they're, Needless to say, there must be an entirely different system in which um, some type of outside um, agency or group or advisory board must have more input than we currently have now because the entire the, the, an agency like the FDA and so many age government agencies are entirely captured at this point. Absolutely. And, and so um, I, I, before I ask you what happens next, I'm just curious, whatever happened to... Did, what, what did the family doctor say? The one who told him to stay on, did, did you, uh, like, what was his reaction or did, how did you interact with him ever again after that? Sure. So um, we did not, we decided not to sue the doctor. And the reason we didn't um, sue the doctor is, you know, my, my law firm, Bob Headland out of LA, one of the, t they were actually working on these issues, you know, the Phil Hartman case when his wife murdered Phil mm -hmm. Hartman and, you know, the Saturday Night Live. They were yes. doing those cases and Pfizer, they all secretly settled. So on this case, so they knew that they, um, Pfizer had a document where they talk about the side effect and it was in a journal article. So that was public, right? Where it's talking about um, a side effect called akathisia. And akathisia is like this constant inner restlessness, moving around, um, head outside the body. It's this inner agitation, this inner burning that literally he wrote, the same chief medical officer, Dr. Roger Lane, wrote, if a patient gets akathisia, quote unquote, death may be a welcome result. So that article, you know, that's an article that anybody can go find. But what was not known to the public, including or the doctors really, is that he wrote an entire, um, he wrote a sale a memo to the sales team that said the attached journal article um, 
is not um, maybe of interest to neurologically inclined psychiatrists, but not general practitioners. Well, that's because 80, so they didn't, the GPs don't even know about this. And yet 80 per 70 to 80% or more now um, are written by GPs. So they intentionally kept okay. this article out from the GPs. So at that point, I don't blame Woody's doctor. He did okay. what they, the salespeople did, you know, probably told him, hey, it takes four to six weeks. Because even now, if I tell Woody's story, I will hear people from the public just regurgitate back to me. Well, it takes four to six weeks for it to work. And I'm like, no, clearly he was having an adverse reaction. He should yeah. not have been on the drug. He should have been told. But, you know, when I go back and look at what I, all I was asking at that point, warn Warn, it's not that hard. Warn, it, you yeah. know, there are going to still be people who are going to take your drugs. I don't care about that. But, you know, you need to warn. I never told at my, you know, my stance back then and even still today, you know, is really not about taking the drug off the market. But you need to warn. And if you start, um, if there's adverse events and you even remotely knew about it, which you did in 1991, FDA, um, yes. and did nothing about it. Um, and, you know, but I think there's this culture at the FDA and within the companies, and, and that's really safety is an after effect. You know, um, safety is not really, even though everything's considered safe and effective, um, you know, they, the FDA viewed Woody's story, and um, I went in to, and met with the top um, FDA official at that time, um, Dr. Temple and Dr. Tom Lachran, who um, told them our story and they literally told us, and there was like three other families, they literally told us they were anecdotes. They didn't happen in the clinical trials. I'm like, anecdotes? I'm like, uh, these anecdotes, real world is anecdotes, if you want yeah. to call them that, is real. Like that is a data point. And if you start getting all these people that are reporting this and putting it in, you know, and especially now at the, they've had people, these FDA big advisory committee hearings where literally hundreds of people showed up. The sides of the room were um, uh, full of armed security guards and all the major media. So there were family after family after family after family after family telling their loved one's story. And you're just calling this anecdote. And But you knew about it back in 91. And so, you know, my feeling is there could have been a warning. There could have been something that you... When somebody is having a side effect or something like this, you know, you would be able to have a chance. We didn't have a chance. Woody didn't have a chance. Yeah. He was fighting for it. You could hear it when every day he was trying to, how do I beat this feeling in my head? You know, I even told him to quit his job. I'm like, you know, what if your new job is um, too stressful, quit it. But that was not the right, you know, that wasn't what it was. It was the drug side effect. Yeah, but you weren't, you weren't informed. Like, no. Like, like what, you're, what you mentioned where it's not even necessarily saying take it off the shelves, you're, you're talking about the classic concept of informed consent, which not even your doctor had because when you called him, he wasn't some evil guy twirling his mustache going, no, stay on it for a few more weeks. He literally, that's all he knew. Now, that could be a whole other conversation about how um, you know, general practitioners, what they, what they're told, what they're not told, and what more they could be doing. But but I can understand your point of saying like he was at the bottom rung of this whole thing. And I've I've read on your website. I you, you here's a quote. You say to be clear, I'm not anti-drug. I'm pro-information. And to me, that's as balanced as you can possibly get in this conversation. You know, people have the right to be anti-drug if they choose, but pro-information is the way to go. And it's such a reasonable request. And, you know, particularly, we, we'll get to this in a little bit, but particularly over the past two years with the COVID injections, the, the concept of pro-information has vanished. Like, if you try to find out information, you'll be banned from social media. And so, it, but it, never in the history of mankind has the person who've been hiding information from people been the good guy. And so, bravo to you for, for you know, first of all, thank you for sharing such a terrible story and something that you will carry with you the rest of your life. But bravo to you for just like rapidly getting up to speed on this and taking action. Um, like I know that you've been on an FDA advisory board and I want to talk about that, but I, I have a, another question first where I'm assuming 
based on everything you said, that you've dealt with a lot of politicians and corporate executives. And I'm just curious, what's what's it like to deal with people in these positions? And have you found ways to navigate their decidedly, you know, naturally occurring deceptive styles? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting when you the culture back then was very interesting because, and yet for me, it was, you know, like the, the Democrats were actually the ones that were helping us with a lot of the drug safety. There was like this, you know, more like, you know, uh, corporations are evil and, you know, there was a little bit more like, let's protect the people there. That was kind of the attitude back then, uh, when Woody and we were trying to get all these, um, warnings and hearings and in our mind, we were like, well, it doesn't matter. This is not a red or blue issue. This is a people issue. I don't care mm-hmm. what side of the party aisle you're on. This, we need your help. And you are the people in charge. We need your help. And so we worked. Um, we also were able to work with the Republicans at that time. Senator Grassley did an amazing job because he, um, you know, he was calling in the he was calling in the drug company executives and and looking at the ties to academic institution and research which you know you know we'll get to what's happening in the last couple of years but you know back then there was a big attention on who with the money flow right and who's in charge and they and i even uh you know sometimes you would get when you'd go out to DC and meet with them, you'd get their staffers and you realize you could run circles around them because you know, they're young and it's a young person in their twenties, like this would be fun. And so there were times where like, no, no, we need to get up um, a higher chief of staff and into um, members. And I think as I always tell people, cause I get asked like, what advice would you have? I'm like, be relentless and never quit. You know, for me, this was bigger you guys are the ones in charge. I can't do anything about this. You guys can. And you are responsible for, you know, like FDA or over oversight. And you work for us. So, like, do your job. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the opportunities I had is I was able to, uh, or I was invited to uh, testify before the U.S. Senate Help Committee. And at that point, it was like Obama and Clinton were on the committee, as was Senator Dodd, uh, Ted Kennedy. And okay. it was a really amazing experience because it was the FDA. And I think this is how I ultimately got onto the FDA committee. But it was the current FDA commissioner. Then the next panel was myself and three um, former FDA commissioners. And I shared Woody's um, story, but I realized it's not just the story, you know, of course it's, you know, cause they can't really do anything about that, but I brought ideas. I brought ideas of ways that I thought they could fix the FDA and reform the FDA. Um, so that was a interesting, but I feel like the entire system has kind of changed in the last, you know, several years from what it was back then. But you know, it. what I found interesting is a lay person living in the middle of the country who never really cared about politics or followed politics or anything is that the money flows both ways. Because you know, it might've been the Democrats originally helping us, then a couple of years later it became the Republicans and they're taking money. Like, it doesn't matter who, it's just whoever's yeah. in charge is getting the money. Yeah, these agencies are entrenched. Yeah. And they're going to outlive. Like when you just said be relentless, I'm thinking like because you as an advocate are going to outwork and outlive these um, in many cases transient um, Congress people and senators who may be in and out. Who has the majority this election? Who has the majority next election? And it's, it's just one big game. But to you, it's it's a mission and relentlessness indeed sounds like it is the quality that's going to make the difference because they're counting on you at some point either um, accepting some kind of bogus compromise and and declaring victory for yourself and moving on or just wearing down and they made a mistake with you on, on either either case that you like wearing down isn't an option here but it's very inspirational that people need to know that I, I do want to ask when you mentioned that you had ideas and then you also said that it's changed my two questions would be were, was there 
any receptiveness to your ideas. And when you say, you describe it as how bad it was back then, and you say it's changed and the tone of your voice means implied to me that it's even worse now. Am I correct on that? You're correct. I think it's worse now than it was then. Um, and it was already still, you know, pretty political, meaning that, the, and I worked with consumer groups because I realized as an individual, you have to be strategic and figure out how to get, you know, you have more power when you have more people behind you because that's who people, you know, that's who the Congress people listen to is if you represent an organization. But then I started learning all this stuff about some of the organizations and who they get money from. So it was a big um, lesson. But um, so one of the, a couple of the ideas that we had, you know, I have spent my entire career in advertising and I believe that my industry has had a huge impact on the unnecessary um, selling of, you know, uh, the products. Mm -hmm. um, we're the only country in the world other than New Zealand that even allow drug ads. And I know the, the role of PR. So one of my ideas is, if you know, well, first of all, I said we should not have any drug ads, just like, you, Absolutely. Know, big, you know, just like big tobacco. We got rid of that. We got rid of um, hard liquor yep. ads and, you know, commercials. But, you know, I, I was also a realist saying that is what I would like, but I'm also a realist knowing that you will say it's freedom of speech and, you know, all that um, First Amendment. But I said, one of the things is then, you know, you need to let people know that they have the ability and the right to um, report their side effects and that you're willing to listen to it. So the idea is that there would be like a, um, a, a tag um, to the website, you know, the MedWatch or today now theirs for the vaccines mm -hmm. um, and, or an 800 number that you could report them yourself as a consumer um, to the FDA. And they gave us, and I say gave us, meaning the groups that were kind of behind this, they gave us the adding it to the print ads, but they said they needed to study because Big Pharma and their lobbyists got into all the senators because we had traction. I mean, I was super excited about it. Like, I thought, okay, this would be a huge win if we could, like, actually as part of the disclaimer that they had to say, and if you experience a side effect, you should report it to, you know, the FDA. Yes. But instead, the um, Big Pharma got in there and they were able to convince the, um, the Senate and the Congress um, that they needed to study it for a couple of years. And to this day, there's never been a report. They never studied it. And guess what? They got what they needed. I was like, God, they're so like, they're super strategic that they're like, all right, well, just give them that little print ad. But we're going to take and I was, you know, for me, the big thing is the um, drug commercials. And then you would have had it on voiceover and you would have had it, you know, report your side effects. Um, but the truth, but the truth is, nobody really wants you to report your side effects. They don't really want to hear from um, from the public, and of course, they automatically assume that you know those that the reports that come in are are just anecdotes, anyways. And you know, what are what do lay people? What does a family member really know about their loved one's story? So. Yeah, they're, they're so detached from the, the true concept of health that they perceive themselves as as um, being far more knowledgeable about what individuals feel about their mind and body. Like, so it's, it's, I can't speak, obviously, for every big pharma executive, but it seems as a whole, they, they couldn't even conceive that you or I would be able to know when something's right or wrong with us mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, in a way that there's no test that can measure that, and there's certainly no drug that can fix it. And so they, so that's their, that's their ace in the hole because we we live in a culture in which experts are lionized and put up on a on a you know a pedestal. And if you report that a vaccine or a, an antidepressant is causing unusual um, side effects, it's it's almost natural. The way you said how people would recite to you, well, it takes four to six weeks for people to adjust to a, uh, to a, 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 a um, antidepressant drug. We, you recite that as if you know for a fact that it's realistic, but it's just you've heard it so many times. And someone in a white coat may have said it to you once. So they're so clever in how they 
how they market this. And it requires that relentlessness where it just has to be that more people than you, more of us have to be out there um, educating ourselves and speaking up relentlessly. Um, now, I'm just doing a chime check here. Before we quickly segue to a little bit on the vaccine, I'm just curious, what's it like for you now? Like we're almost 20 years after this tragedy. You're obviously deeply informed, educated, focused, ensconced in this. Like what's a, for someone that's an advocate like you, an accidental advocate, what's like, what's a typical day or a typical week like in this fight to, to uh, at least get information from Big Pharma? Sure. Well, like you said, I've been doing it many years. And truthfully, I thought once we got the black box warnings put on the drugs, that it was just a, you know, an issue with that class of drugs. But what I saw through all of this was it's a systemic problem with our drug safety system, right? So, you know, some of the things that I do now or some of my efforts is I sit on the FDA psychopharmalogic drugs advisory board as the consumer rep representing the public. And that is when, um, so that's the same committee that in 91 didn't do their job. So that's a real eye-opening experience because I see what's coming, you know, the new drugs that are coming to our committee for review are using all these fast-tracking mechanisms like breakthrough therapy, um, um, accelerated approval. So, mm -hmm. you know, emergency use authorization, you know, these are all pathways to get the drugs on the market fast. So I still am involved and I will speak out. I always say I'm speaking out for families who live every day with the consequences of a failed drug safety system. So I will, anytime there's an FDA hearing and if it's involving a drug that has safety issues, I go and speak and I educate myself on that, those issues. And some of them have been, you know, like the um, antipsychotics, uh, there's been propatia, which is the baldness that causes mm -hmm. um, suicide. Uh, I spoke out on that one. The um, singular, which it was for, they were, um, which is an asthma or, you know, allergy asthma medicine okay. that can, that ultimately now has a warning for um, psychiatric side effects. So I will continue to do that and find the, the space where there's safety because my, point of view will always come, um, will always be safety first. And it really should be. And it's about educating. So I have gone to, um, you know, like, because I travel and have gone to a lot of conferences, the idea of safety I've found is a bigger priority over in, you know, internationally than it is in the US. And so there was a conference that I went to in Amsterdam called Selling Sickness. And every, and it was put on by the government, and nonprofits attended from people from all over the EU, Australia, New Zealand, um, Asia, and only a handful of us from the US. And I'm not, I'm kidding, no more than 10 people. And half of them were myself and my lawyers that we went over there. And every example of selling sickness was from the um, US. So I brought that, so I brought that conference you know, I was like, why aren't you guys having this conference in the U.S.? And, of course, it was out of there. Um, so I brought it, and we did it in D.C. Good so for I'll you. Do, yeah, I'll do that. I'll still speak. I do a lot of public speaking. And now I'm creating something, uh, the Selling Sickness Web, because once I started putting all this together of, like, the patient and doctor, there's big pharma is so deeply entrenched in areas. And... Uh, including so much that the doctors are not aware. And that was one finding that I thought that I, you know, found at the, in the beginning, like what, as in med school, you guys don't learn about like, what is ghostwriting? What is, um, what is ghostwriting? What is, you know, um, um, key opinion leaders? What is clinic? You know, they don't even understand that. So if you're not learning that at the med school level, how are you, going to be a critical thinking doctor when I come in as a lay patient coming in seeking mm. some help. So anyways, that's some of my background information. And I know the last couple of years, I have never um, done much on the vaccines because there are a lot of other family members. 
um, I don't have children, so I knew that there were harmed families that have been amazing advocates for a long time, warning yes. about issues with vaccines. But the COVID vaccine was a whole different issue for me. Yeah, I, I could. I just as like a final question, I was going to ask you like, how was it? How was it in say 2021 when this experimental injection is being forced on people and deadly pharmaceutical protocols were being imposed on people in hospitals. Like I could only imagine that the pandemic has impacted your mission. And I'm wondering, do you think that the growing awareness, the growing number, and then the growing awareness of the side effects of the jabs could have, I hate to use this, but sort of a silver lining that this could be the breakthrough for the type of work that you've been doing for 20 years like in terms of public awareness and pub the public demanding that th that this cannot happen again. Yes. Um, good, good questions. I mean, I think we could do an entire episode on, Absolutely. on um, the vaccines, <laughs> the COVID vaccines from the beginning when I was looking at the, the trials and the, I realized that they lost half the placebo group. All of a sudden they're like, it's illegal to give the, um, it's unmorally and unethical to keep the, um, the jab, you know, the, the vaccine from the placebo group. And I was like, what? No, that's, that is good clinical trial research. Yes. You keep it, you keep a placebo group and the, so I'm, so we lost the placebo group. So that was one thing that I started like, you know, um, thinking then when it was starting to roll out and everybody like the marketing is like, this is what I do professionally. So I could see through it when you started the using of the celebrities and everybody is saying the exact same script and they're all saying it's completely safe and effective. I'm like, how do they know it's completely safe and effective? It hasn't even been on the market. Like you can't say it's completely safe. Like that is, um, uh, and then, you know, then when I started watching some of the promotions and I think the first sales promotion, it was uh, by Krispy Kreme. And it was bring yeah. your bring your card in, and you can get a donut a day for a year. And I, I was like, "What? That is not health." Like, if we're talking about health, you're <laughs> not feeding people Dunkin' or Krispy Kreme donuts. And and I go, "Wait, that's what we do in advertising and marketing. Like that's sales promotion. You know, you're incentivizing." So that was those were already red flags before we got into you know, being mandated. And I actually participated in Senator Johnson's November 2nd um, hearing last year and met a lot of the injured. And I had been for a long time working with a couple of the experts that were on that panel. And it was a really eye-opening because the data is not there, but so many lies. And then the idea of all the work that I had done just by simply and trying to teach people, you know, when you go to the doctor and they want to give you a pill or a treatment, here are the questions, you know, here are some of the questions you ask, you know, what happens if I don't do it? What are the side effects? Like, what are this? You know, it was like, you couldn't ask questions. It was automatically it's safe and effective. Like just put it in your arm. Yes. And so that was, you know, one of those issues. And, and then of course, when I saw that um, because I sit on, another FDA advisory committee and know every time I would ask about off-label marketing, right? Uh, I would always be met with the classic response at the FDA. We're not in the business of um, regulating how doctors practice, you know, medicine. So <laughs> then I was like, all of a sudden now ivermectin was, you can't use it as a horse yeah. pill. I'm like, wait, that doesn't even make sense. I, I always tell everybody that was working on it go back and go to this transcript, go to this transcript, because you can have where exactly what they said, the FDA, we're not in the business. So all of those became like red flags. And then when I start meeting the people that are injured, it was, it's beyond heartbreaking. And they're my heroes because there are a lot of them out there right now advocating for just information and they're being gaslit and, I can only imagine what that must be like when it's a societal thing. When I go back and think when Woody died, uh, a lot of people would be like, really a pill can cause somebody, come on, Kim, you're just like a grieving widow looking for an excuse. And they'd be like, you're making up and you really believe a pill. And so I know how much that gaslighting and mm -hmm. label it felt. 
that now it's like magnified beyond anything. So, but to your um, last question of, um, do I think this is um, the thing that'll break open? I really believe it is. I think it's at least it's gonna be the thing that'll shine the light on what has been going on in um, pharmaceutical, the regulators, and getting the public. Because, you know, I've been in the, I always say I'm on the inside right now. You know, I'm on the inside at the FDA. I'm trying to change it there. I'm, you know, out lobbying Congress. But the reality is that that's not where change is gonna happen. Change is gonna happen when you and I, the everyday person, the everyday average person, starts getting mad about it and starts um, ground up pushing back. I agree. And saying enough is enough. So, no, that I totally is, agree. It's the change. The change isn't going to come top down. It, they'll make it. They'll take credit that it's top down when the time comes. But you know, I I am so behind you. The way the way they shut down any type of dialogue, and you seem to be implying that you agree with this. I feel like they overplayed their hand, and that's going to work in our favor. They were so heavy-handed in this something that's never been tested they there you can't have long-term safety if long-term hasn't happened yet and and people um were scared to death and and that that's the role of big farmers to sell this fear and they they sold it really well during the the the, the lockdown time period and out of fear people rushed out but as you said there's so many people suffering not not just the deaths but the incrementally exponentially more um disabled people now and you know it's the these are people who thought they were doing the right thing and to have themselves suddenly be called like an anti-vaxxer when they lined up two or three times for the shot um i'm i'm gonna just have faith in them that this could be the breakthrough and then someone like you is around to say hey by the way this is nothing new this wasn't invented in 2020 and 2021, these tactics by Big Pharma. Here's the record. Here's what I've seen from the inside. And that's when the whole house of cards can come down. And and the, we have to operate under the, the, the assumption that our relentlessness is going to make a difference. Otherwise, they, they, they'll beat you into submission. And that's, that it's not happening to you, obviously. And it's it's an honor to talk to you. And, I, and thank you for the critical work you do. I'm going to share all the links that I have from you, you sent me a bunch when we first got in touch. Um, in if in 30 seconds or so, if you were going to just talk to the listeners and suggest to them what they can do starting right now to help create this change that we need to support the work that you do to educate themselves, what would you, what would be your brief message in closing to them? Well, first of all, I would say, do your research, um, really stop and and have and be willing to have a conversation with people that have a different opinion and yes. be be like if it doesn't feel right to you intuitively don't fall into um falling into that trap like i think there's nobody who knows your body or your family's body better than you do and so the you know and be willing especially the last couple of years be critical thinking and ask what if what if this was wrong? What if? And so those are some of the things that I always say and, and, and really push and don't be afraid to, to stand up, speak out because we need all voices. And if you've been injured, please tell your story. Please tell your story. Thank you. Amen to all of that. And thank you for all the work you do and all the work I know you will continue doing. And as you said, maybe we'll, we'll have to do a follow-up where we can just do an entire episode on what you've, the work and what you've learned with the, um, with specifically with the COVID injections and perhaps as a way we could uh, get some, some of the vaccine injured people involved in that conversation. But Kim, thank you so much. It's been, it's been enlightening and inspirational to talk to you and I appreciate your work and your time. Thank you so much, Mickey. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month less than 17 cents a day, you can support 
this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial and it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber and please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up. People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is. And now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance. And let's get back to the show. In September, I had to have minor oral surgery. And I wrote about this a little bit on Substack, but it really bears repeating now after the conversation I just had with Kim. You know, let me just clarify. I, I try my best to take care of myself, but man, I neglected my teeth when I was a teenager and have been paying for it ever since. And I'm fine now, but I would like to share two brief anecdotes related to my oral surgery that dovetail with this particular episode. Now, this dental experience, of course, involved filling out forms, and I left the pharmacist section blank. The young woman at the desk assumed I had just overlooked it and asked me to fill it out, and I explained that since I haven't taken any prescription medications in a very, very long time, I don't have a quote-unquote regular pharmacist. For a few seconds, it was unclear what to do since the office required that a pharmacy be listed and they had never encountered someone who didn't have a regular pharmacist. Finally, she just wrote in the local Dwayne Reed and we left it at that. Now, when it came time to do the surgery, before we commenced the procedure, I was asked if I wanted a local anesthetic, something like a Novocaine, partial sedation, or full sedation. The dental assistant slash nurse seemed a little surprised that I just asked for the bare minimum, the absolute bare minimum of local anesthesia. It seems many, if not most people, choose full sedation. She agreed with my decision and explained that oral surgery is often not that painful in the moment, but all the pressure and tugging, etc., scares people in theory, so they choose to sleep through it rather than find out for themselves that something is not as dangerous as they were led to believe. Overall, things went smoothly, and I appreciate how everyone in the oral surgeon's office was so incredibly nice and professional, and most of all, I'm super grateful that I've had very minimal exposure to such experiences in my life. But I want to close by reiterating that lesson I learned. Most people would rather literally sleep through a medical decision than find out for themselves that something is not as dangerous as they were led to believe. After hearing Kim Witsack on this powerful episode and, and continually learning more and more about the horrifying impact of the experimental injection that's been imposed on billions of people in the past year or two, it is long overdue time to stop with the voluntary sleeping. It is time to stay wide awake and keep your guard up. <laughs>